Join me now. Take your Bibles and open them to that phenomenal, foundational, very first book, the book of Genesis, as we journey on in our adventure through this text. And today we're going to be in chapter 5. So go ahead and join me in Genesis 5. And we're going to look at a genealogy. Doesn't that sound exciting? Some of you are like, man, I should have skipped today. A genealogy? Are you kidding me, Pastor Scott? I mean, this is the place where if you're reading through your Bible in a year, this is where a lot of you get bogged down right here, and you read those phrases, you know, and -and so-and-so fathered so-and-so, and and you read that over and over and over, and your eyes kind of glaze over, and your brain kind of goes on autopilot, and you just derail. Some people have compared reading a biblical genealogy uh, to eating a lobster, You're working through that shell, and you're trying to pull it apart and fish around in there and try to get the good stuff. Well, listen, I've been working on the shell in advance. I found some good stuff, okay? And I'm going to share it with you. Uh, But when you look at this, you might wonder, what is a genealogy doing in Genesis right here? Why do we have to read through 10 straight generations in this chapter? I mean, if the Bible is the inspired word of God, this is delivered from him to man, it's from God, why would a genealogy be inspired? What's the big deal about that? I don't, do we really care about that? Well, if you're a Gentile, you might not. You might not. If you're a Jew, however, and you've just been delivered from bondage in Egypt and your people have been enslaved there 400 years and you don't know jack squat about your heritage, about your lineage, you got some vague idea that once upon a time there was some sort of miraculous birth that God granted to Abraham and Sarah and ultimately it led to you, but that's all you know. But then you get liberated from Egypt, and you're in the wilderness, and you're wandering around, and then Moses, your leader, ends up on Sinai, and he meets with God, and God imparts this revelation to him, and he produces this book that we're reading and studying together called Genesis, and as a Jew, you open that, and you read that, and you see that not only are you descended from Abraham, but Abraham is descended from uh, uh, from Shem, who happens to be the son of Noah, who happens to be descended from Seth, the son of Adam. And Seth's line is a godly line, and it's going to be through that line that there will be a prophesied deliverer, a redeemer that God spoke of way back in Genesis 3, and it all starts to come together, and it just rocks your world, and you realize I'm part of something much, much bigger. I'm part of a divine plan, and this is why you have a genealogy, is because you see the sovereign hand of God. Now, let's look at this. Now, we're we're not going to read the whole genealogy today. There are things I could pull out of here along the way, but I want to zero in on one particular name. And we're going to start, though, in verse 1. So look at this with me. In verse 1, it says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female. He created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Now I'm going to stop right there. I I promise to avoid these rabbit trails, but I find this fascinating. When Adam was created, whose image was he created in? God's image. Adam was created in innocence. He was created in perfection. But now what's happened? The fall 
has happened. Man has descended into sin, and now we see Adam is having children of his own. Who are those children born in? Whose image are they born in? They're born in not the image of God, but in the image of Adam. Now, we reflect God's handiwork, and so we do reflect his image in that way, but we are no longer perfect in the image of God. Now we're in the image of Adam. And it's very, very important as we move forward because of this pattern that's going to emerge in the genealogy. And here's the pattern, verse 4. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Watch this. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. I want you to underline those three words. And he died. You're going to see that phrase over and over and over. You know, if you were to walk through the burial vaults in the historic cathedral in Rochester, Kent, England, you would see rows and rows and rows of sepulchers for deceased bishops and notable citizens. Many, many great Britons are buried there. You could see uh, the 14th century bishop of Rochester, John Sheppey. You would see uh, the tomb of Walter de Merton. He was a chancellor of England, founder of Merton College. You would see the tomb of the Roman missionary, Paulinus. And so just centuries of, of uh famed Britons buried there in the catacombs of Rochester Cathedral. But there is one tomb. If you were to tour this cathedral back in 1870 or thereabouts, you would come across a tomb that was unlike any other tomb in that cathedral. You see, England's greatest Victorian author, Charles Dickens, was a longtime resident of Rochester. Uh, this town was so beloved in Dickens' mind that he worked it into his literature. His first novel, The Pickwick Papers, was set in Rochester. His final unfinished work, Mystery of Edwin Drood, uh, Rochester figures prominently into that book. He loved Rochester so much that he, he desired upon his death to be buried in the cathedral cemetery just outside. But when he suffered his fatal stroke in 1870, that cathedral cemetery was full. And so to honor... England's greatest author, arrangements were made to dig a sufficient vault within the cathedral itself. And they dug this tomb alongside notable clerics and royals from centuries past. There would be a tomb inside the cathedral bearing the name of the world's most famous writer, Charles Dickens. But that's not what made this tomb unique. Because you see, this tomb was unique because it was empty. It was an empty tomb. <laughs> Why was it empty? Because upon his death, by the time that resting place had been completed, Dickens' body had been whisked away to Westminster Abbey in London. You see, the dean there, a guy named Arthur Stanley, had been searching for a writer of some significance to be buried in their famous poet's corner. And he thought a Dickens would be a major boost to the reputation of Westminster Abbey. And so he finagled and he applied pressure to the Dickens family. And they caved. And they allowed Charles Dickens to be buried in Westminster Abbey. Meanwhile, back at Rochester, all they could do was commemorate Dickens by putting a little plaque next to an empty tomb. You know, a, a, a reading through Genesis 5 can kind of be like a stroll through a graveyard. You look at all these accounts, and it's kind of like you're walking past rows of headstones. And each one of these headstones gives a person's basic information. You see their name there. 
You see their offspring, how many they had. You, you see the number of their years. You see the fact of their death. And it always ends with that familiar phrase, and he died. Every time, every headstone, verse 5, and he died. Verse 8, and he died. Verse 11, and he died. Verse 14, and he died. Verse 17, and he died. Verse 20, and he died. And then on this little jaunt through the Genesis 5 graveyard, you come across a very peculiar headstone with a unique epitaph. And in verse 21, it says, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Well, so far this marker isn't too different from the others, except for that bit about walking with God. We'll get to that later. But what's that say down at the bottom of the headstone? And you brush the dust away. It says in verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. He took him. We're expecting to see, and he died. But it doesn't say that. All these little obituaries read the same way, not this one. What is so special about this guy, Enoch, that he would not have the same taste of death as all the others? All the graves prior to his are occupied. All the graves after his are occupied. He's going to have a son that dies. He's going to have a grandson that dies. What's the story here? What makes Enoch so special? Well, what I want you to see, the big idea here in your notes, is that after Abel, after Abel, Enoch is the first great paradigm of faithfulness in the Bible. And though he doesn't occupy a great deal of real estate in Scripture, there is a lot from his example that we need to learn from, and we're going to do that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, God, for what you're doing in the lives of everyone in this church. I thank you for the ministry of this church. Thank you for our guest today testifying to the work that is going out. God, be with us. Guide our study of the book of Genesis, and in particular, this account of a man named Enoch, Help us to see what he represents, God. A life that is everlasting. Because even though we are all promised that one day death awaits us, God, we know that death is not the end. And as I speak of death, I'm mindful of what is going on today in the nation of Israel. And Lord, I just want to pray for that nation right now as they seek to do all they can to provide safety and security for their people, God. And I pray that you, you would have your hand upon all of the goings-on over there, Lord. And I, I pray above all that the Jewish people and the Palestinian people in mass would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Would you bring that about in your sovereign way? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let us look now. As we study this genealogy and we see that phrase, and he died repeatedly, and that is a reminder of something. And in your notes, uh, Genesis 5 is a stark reminder that, that death is a result of Adam's sin. Death is a reality. Death uh, would spread because of sin. What Adam did, the disobedience there in the garden, that has spread through mankind like a virus, why do people die? All people die. Good people die. Bad people die. Kind people die. Mean people die. Tar Heels die. Duke fans die. Everybody dies. Children die. 
Babies die. I will die. You will die. I am reminded of that with every passing birthday. In fact, I got one tomorrow. Well, thank you very much. And it's kind of a milestone. So I'm really mindful that the end is closer than it's ever been. You know, in our house, my wife likes, she has a thing for uh, furniture of a certain style. It's mid-century modern. Well, tomorrow I join that furniture. I'm becoming mid-century. I'm, I'm going to be 50. And thank you very much. You know, and also, speaking of furniture, this is about the age you, men acquire that furniture's disease. That's when your chest falls into your drawers, you know. That's right. But death comes to us all. Bodies wear out, right? It's a reality. But we do know this. As a Christian, death is not the end. Amen? That's right. And I'm overjoyed. Every funeral I get to officiate that, I remind people of that fact. I, I think of the person in that casket, if they're a believer, and I tell the folks, I say, you know, they knew Jesus. If you know Jesus, this is not the end. That's not even them. That's just the candy shell, the peanuts in heaven. Amen? That's right. And there's going to be a reunion one day. And we will never part after that. And, and in light of that fact in your notes, Enoch is a foretaste of eternal life in Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see exemplified in this man. Of all the names in this genealogy, he's the only one, apart from Adam, that you're going to see his name in the New Testament. Enoch is mentioned in the book of Jude. He's mentioned in the book of Hebrews. And in fact, we're going to see how Hebrews, in that famous uh, chapter of the faithful, chapter 11, it describes Enoch in verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And this kind of sheds light on what we read back in Genesis about Enoch. There we, we saw that it says, and he was not, for God took him. Well, this kind of sheds light on that. When, when people die, when Christians die, sometimes we say, well, God took him home. But in the case of Enoch, not only did God take him, he took him before he died. Enoch never even died. And so here's what I want. We're going to get into that and those facts of that departure, but we're going to see here in your notes what he represents for the believer today. And first of all, Enoch represents, number one, spiritual completeness. Spiritual completeness. If you examine this genealogy, it starts with Adam. That's generation one. Adam fathers Seth, who fathers Enosh, who fathers Kenan, who fathers Mahalel, who fathers Jared, who fathers Enoch. What generation is Enoch from Adam? He's the seventh generation. Does that number seven have significance in your Bible? All through the scripture you see that. Biblical numerology is a fascinating study. We don't have time to get into all of it today, but the number seven is the number of completion. It's God's number. And you see seven all over your Bible. Uh, if you recall, the, the creation account that we studied together, God creates for six days. He rests on the seventh day because creation was completed. And we know that in the Jewish sacrificial system, there was the sacrificing of animals. They had to be at least seven days old in order to sacrifice them. In 1 Kings, there's a guy named Naaman, 2 Kings rather. He has uh, got leprosy and he's instructed to bathe in the Jordan how many times? 
seven times to be cleansed. You got the battle of Jericho. Joshua marches around that city seven days straight. On the seventh day, he marches seven times on the seventh revolution. He then commands at the completion of that seven priests to blow seven trumpets. You've got prophecy that is rife with his number seven. Jeremiah prophesies the Babylonian captivity. It's going to last 70 years. In the book of Daniel, there's that famous 70 weeks prophecy. In the book of Revelation, we just completed a series on Wednesday nights about the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. If you keep reading in Revelation, you see that number seven. Uh, John has a vision of the throne of God. The seven spirits of God are before the throne. It's surrounded by seven golden lampstands. The one that we are worshiping, Jesus Christ, has seven, uh, seven, uh, what has he got? He's got seven uh, heavenly father, seven stars. Did I mention I'm turning 50 tomorrow? He's got seven stars in his Lord's hand. You got the tribulation. How long does it last? Seven years. This is not even an exhaustive list, y'all. Seven is God's number. It's the number of completion. And so we can reasonably conclude that there is a completeness found in Enoch, a spiritual completeness. Did you know that you and I, we find our completeness in Jesus Christ? In Colossians 2, it says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. He completes you. So we see that in Enoch. And then number two, he represents... He represents an embrace of responsibility. An embrace of responsibility. I want you to know Enoch, the name, means dedicated. Dedicated. Uh, if you look at this genealogy, it might have occurred to you, these are, some, these are some long-lived dudes here. They live hundreds of years. Adam, uh, 930 years he lives. Seth, 912. Enosh lives 905. Why are these people living so long? Some of you might think, well, wasn't there a fall? I thought that death came through the fall, that man would no longer live forever. That's true. And they don't live forever. But apparently it would take some time in this perfect world to degrade, for bodies to begin to wear out, for creation to, to corrupt gradually. Lifespans would get shorter eventually. But I want you to notice all these guys are having kids in their hundreds. Enoch... At a mere 65 years of age, has a son. Why, he's, he's retirement age by our standards. He's just a whippersnapper compared to some of these other guys. And he has a kid. And this kid's name is Methuselah. And you might know that name. But I want you to notice what happens when Methuselah is born. It says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. Now, walking with God seems important. You don't see anybody else being described this way as walking with God. We know that Adam walked with God in the garden, but then there was the fall in sin. Nobody's walking with God after that point until this man right here. There's something special. There's a spiritual intimacy. There's a spiritual awakening. When does it begin? It begins when he becomes a father. He has a responsibility to family, and then God gets a hold of him. And then it says he walks with God. After that moment. Now, I think a lot of us Christian parents can relate to that. Some of you, when you became parents, you're like, I got to kick this up a notch. I got I to gotta elevate. I got to raise the bar on my spirituality. Now, I'm a model to someone. Now, I have an influence on someone younger. I got to be a good example to them. You know, I can relate to having, you know, being shocked by parenthood into a higher level of spiritual awareness. I got four kids. Two of them are boys. And so I know what it means to get, get shocked into that sense of, 
of responsibility, you know? My parents are here today. They're right down here, Rob and Darla Grimm. Great to have them today. <clears throat> you can ask them, did Scott do anything shocking? That, that, actually, that's a bad idea. Let's not do that. Uh, <laughs> not smart Grimm. Anyway, there's a weight of responsibility here. But I would say that's, there's something more afoot, actually, if you go on. A verse, uh, in, in number three on your notes here, Enoch also represents an understanding, an understanding of judgment. Judgment. He names his son Methuselah. Methuselah is a compound Hebrew word. It comes from two Hebrew words. You've got maveth, which means death, and you've got shalach, which means to send, as if to send a javelin, Okay? Some scholars look at those words and they, they try to extrapolate there and they say, death, uh, mortality, mortal uh, man, to send a, like a javelin man. His name means, must mean man of, the, man of the spear. And so people conclude that's what Methuselah means. That is not the literal uh, rendering of his name. Methuselah, literally translated, means he dies and it will be sent. He dies and it will be sent. Imagine that's your name's meaning. When you die, something is going to be sent. What's going to be sent? Look at verse 25. It says, When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Lamech. You might notice some similarities to some names in the line of Cain. We looked at a guy named Enoch, a guy named Lamech. These are different men here. These are godly men. This Lamech... He is the son of Methuselah, and his name, Lamech, means despair. Despair. So we conclude that Methuselah understood that his name was a prophecy. When I die, something will be sent. And we can determine that Methuselah knew what that was. And he names his son Despair. So whatever was going to be sent upon Methuselah's death, it ain't good. It's not good. But his father, Enoch was the first one to receive this revelation, and as a prophecy, he names his son. He dies, and it is sent. And of Methuselah, we read in verse 26 that he lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And so the pattern reverts after Enoch. And so some of you are now reminded of what you know about Methuselah. Methuselah is famous for one thing in particular. He's the oldest man who ever lived. 969 years. Why would God permit such longevity? Why would he let him be so long-lived? Well, his name is a clue. If upon his final breath, God is going to unleash judgment on the earth, then Methuselah's long life is literally a grace period. God is permitting him to live longer than any person who has ever lived because when he dies, judgment is coming. And so he is allowing, through this man's longevity, maximum time for repentance among the people of the earth. What does that tell you about God? It tells you he's a merciful God. He is a long-suffering God. And the next chapter will address the means of the judgment that is coming in greater detail. But this, this man's life is a prophecy. What is the divine judgment that's coming? Is there a divine judgment on the horizon in the book of Genesis? Is there something that is cataclysmic, that is a worldwide uh, destructive event that's going to befall the earth that we know is coming in the next chapter or two? 
Absolutely, there certainly is the flood. The flood. Now, could this prophecy relate to the flood? When did Methuselah live in relation to the flood? Well, we see that his son, Lamech, also has a son. Look at verse 28. It says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. Hey, we know that name. He says, out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Do you know what Noah means? It means rest. It means relief. And so this tells us this Lamech is a faithful man. His granddaddy prophesied about a coming judgment. His daddy prophesied about a coming judgment through his own name. And here he has a son. And more than that, they also held to a prophecy that God had made himself back in Genesis 3, right after that old tempter, that serpent, had deceived Adam and Eve. And God looked at that serpent and he said, because you've done this, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman, and her seed will crush your head. But you will strike his heel. And all that meant that one day, through the line of man, there would rise up a redeemer. There would come a savior. There would come someone who would set things right. And so Lamech knows that although judgment is coming, I am going to hold true to what God said, that there's coming someone who will reverse the course of this curse of sin. And so when he has a son, so faithful is he, so believing in God's provision, that he names his own son Rest. Now, he might think that it will be his son that will be the one that was prophesied. We know the name of the one who's coming to to reverse the curse of sin. It's not Noah. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Lamech doesn't know all the details, but he's a man of faith, and he names his son Rest. Either way, God's in control. Now, I want to show you something about the prophecy of Methuselah's name and the flood. And I want to confirm that those two things uh, work together. I want you to take your smartphone out of your pocket. Go ahead. It's okay. You can have your phone out in church today. I want you to take it out. And I want you to pull up your calculator app. You're like, okay, we're talking about a genealogy. Now you're going to have us do math. Really? Yeah, but you're going to like this, I promise. Take out your calculator. The number we're looking for is the age that Methuselah would attain to, 969. That's the number we're looking for. So don't put that in. I want you to put in another number first. How old was Methuselah when his son Lamech was born? The scripture just told us, 187 years. So I want you to put in the number 187. All right? 187. Now, how old was Lamech when his son Noah was born? It told us 182. So I want you to add 182 to 187. Now you've got a new number. Now look up here at the screen. In Genesis 7, verse 6, it says that Noah, son of Lamech, was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. So now I want you to take that number, 600, add it to the numbers you've already added together. And when you tally that up, what do you got? 969 years. That means that Noah's flood comes 969 years after Methuselah's birth, possibly even on the day of his death. 
For all we know, he was alive throughout all the time that Noah was building that ark. God told Noah, built an ark of wood, takes him 120 years. Methuselah's watching that thing go up. He's watching it go up. And uh, he's going to outlive his own son, Lamech. All right? And he sees it. Does Methuselah board the ark when it's completed? No, he does not. Because his name means when he dies, it will be sent. And he's the son of the first prophet, Enoch. And Enoch gave him this name as a prophecy of coming judgment. Now imagine you're Enoch. God has given you this revelation. I'm going to destroy the earth. At the end of your son's life, it's coming. So you have, until I take you out, you've got that long. What do you do with that information? You tell everybody you can. So passionate was Enoch that he named his own son the prophecy of God's coming judgment. Now, when we think of people like that today, if there was someone walk around today who says, you know, I know the world's going to end, and I know when it's going to end, what do, what do people tend, how do we regard someone like that? They're crazy. They're crazy. That's the guy with the sign in front of the White House, right? And yet, he preached boldly, bravely, and it spoke volumes through his life, he was a steward of a divine warning, and he executed that responsibility with great diligence. And number four, this is what Enoch represents for us. It's a sense of urgency. It's a sense of urgency. What would you do with a message like that? You would do everything you could to get the word out. You wouldn't want anybody to die, to be judged in that way. You know, back in 2001, we all know what happened. 9-11, that, that's the defining moment in a lot of our lives, historically speaking. But there was something that happened after 9-11 that people don't talk about because it happened just a few days later. On September 15th, 9-11, uh, 2001, there were barges that struck a concrete support piling for the only bridge connecting South Padre Island to the Texas mainland. It was in the middle of the night, and when those barges hit that bridge, two 80-foot slabs of roadway collapsed, crashing into the water there. There were fishermen in the dark in their boats, and they were, they were caught off guard. They heard this uh, cacophony of sound, and they stood there dumbfounded on their boats, and, and they were trying to take in this moment that this bridge had just collapsed. And in their stunned silence, they eventually saw headlights coming up onto that bridge, and then those headlights became taillights as they plunged into the blackness to certain death. And this shocked those fishermen to their very core. And then as they saw more headlights coming, they then responded with urgency, and they began shouting, and they began screaming, and jumping up and down, and waving their hands, and they would shine lights at the cars to try to get them to stop. Turn around! And as they did this, I can just imagine driver after driver probably annoyed at the distraction, the light. Why are you shining a light in my eyes? I'm just trying to go about my business. It's late. I want to get home. Would you leave me alone? I got places to go. And they would plunge to their death. Let me tell you something, Christian. You, like Enoch, are the recipient of a message of judgment. You don't know when it's going to happen, but you do know it's coming. You know because God's word says so. 
And if you know this, then there's an obligation on your part to share that with a world that has no idea so that they'll stop and they'll turn to avoid certain death. And incidentally, this is not the only prophecy that God gave Enoch. I want you to see in the book of Jude, we've actually got a quote from Enoch. Did you know that? Enoch has something to say, and we have it recorded by the brother of Christ himself. In Jude 14, it says it was also about these. The book of Jude, by the way, uh, deals with all during the church age who have rejected Christ. And it says it, it was also about these who reject Christ that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with Ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now I look at that judgment. You see anything about the flood in there? No. No. This is not the flood of Noah. This is a separate judgment. This is a judgment yet to come. For us, this is the final judgment. It says that he's going to return. The Lord will return with 10,000s of his holy ones. Who are those? That is the angelic army of heaven. When is that going to happen? It's going to happen after the tribulation. The Lord will return with his angelic forces. And what's he going to do? He's going to judge the unrighteous. And the knowledge of this judgment as well as the judgment of the flood tells us something about Enoch. He was a true prophet that from his vantage point, eons ago, he knew about the impending flood that would destroy all the earth except for eight souls. And he also knew about a far-flung judgment yet to come for you and I even today. But it is coming. And Jesus said that those two judgments are going to be preceded by circumstances that will be very, very similar. He said so in Matthew 24, 37. He said, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The time of Noah was the most wicked time in the history of humanity. It's going to get that way again. The Lord said so right here. And when it does, he will come back and he will judge. You say, you really believe that, Pastor Scott? I do. I do believe that. You say, but it's been so long. I mean, Jesus, he left like 2,000 years ago. You really believe he's coming back? Well, you know what? The length of time between Adam and Methuselah is roughly the same as the length of time between Christ and right now. So you tell me, is it possible that he's still coming back? I think so. I think so. And despite the wickedness of his day, Enoch still walks with God. Is it possible to walk with God in a wicked day? Can you and I walk with God as Enoch walked with God? He walked with God a long time, 300 years. What does that mean to walk with God as Enoch did? When you walk with someone, you're moving in the same direction as they did. You're not like Cain who walked in opposition to God. You go with God at his pace, step by step. In your notes, how are we to walk with God like Enoch? I want to go back to Hebrews 11. Let's reread verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up that he should not see death, but he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. I want you to underline pleased God. 
He pleased God. To say that someone walks with God is to say that God is pleased with them. Now, some of you are thinking, I don't know how to do that. I don't think I can be good enough to please God. Well, I think the bigger question is, what does it take to please God? Well, all you got to do to know the answer to that is keep reading in Hebrews 11. Go to the next verse, Hebrews eleven six. 6. It says, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. You see, the only thing that pleases God is faith. Not works, not wealth, not legalism, not talent, not looks, not battlefield prowess, not intellect, not physical strength, not any of those things, and especially not religiosity, faith alone. Now, you just think about the faith of Enoch. He walks with God 300 years in the most wicked of environments. What is the content of that faith? Because there's all different kinds of faith that people can have. You know, you can have faith in the Carolina Panthers. They're going to let you down (laughs) from time to time. It's going to happen, okay? So you can have faith in the wrong thing. What is the content? In Hebrews eleven six? 6, without faith it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. This is the first component of true saving faith. In your notes, we must rightly believe concerning, first of all, the object of our faith. You gotta have the right object of your faith. This is a faith in the true God. You believe that he exists. And this is not mere faith in a deity. It's not just the concept of God. It's not just the notion of God, the reality of God. I bet a lot of the people that perished in Noah's flood believed in the idea of God. But it's not enough. You have to embrace the true God. What did Enoch believe? He believed in what his lineage had held to That prophecy of God in Genesis 3, that there would come through man, a redeemer. They believed God. And any kind of faith along those lines, Scripture says, it accounts to whoever believes as righteousness. Enoch believed the gospel. He didn't know the name of Jesus, but he believed in the gospel that had been delivered from Genesis chapter 3. You and I have the full revelation of that gospel. And we know the name of that Redeemer that's coming, who already came and who is coming again. And his name is Jesus Christ. So it's the object of our faith. And then he goes on and he says that not only you must believe that he exists, but also that he rewards those who seek him. So second, Enoch believes in the salvation granted to those who come by faith. You see, and in your notes, this is the outcome of that faith. Not only Right belief concerning the object of our faith, but right belief concerning the outcome of that faith. What is the outcome of faith? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. What is the outcome of our faith? It's salvation. The word used in Hebrews 11, he says he rewards those. Sometimes people look at that, God rewards, and they think it's good works, that we work for a reward. But the original word there is mistapadates. It's one who pays wages. What is the verse that we know that has that word wages in it? It's Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you believe in salvation, you must necessarily believe in destruction. 
Because otherwise, what are you, what are you obtaining salvation from? You're not saved from that which does you no harm. You are saved from certain death. And Enoch believes and obtains salvation through faith. And when you give the gospel, if your gospel presentation does not include hell, you are dealing in an incomplete gospel. The gospel must contain the reality of hell because that is the reason that the gospel matters for us. And Enoch has embraced the true gospel and is rewarded with salvation. He probably gave that gospel little thought until his son was born. And it changed his life. And he models faith, and he becomes God's example of how faith is rewarded with eternal life. And that is vividly pictured back in our text in Genesis 5, in verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Those who walk with God are going to be taken by God. God took Enoch. He's never recorded as having died. He was not. It says he was not. One time, one moment he's there, the next, he's not. God took him. Where'd he go? I imagine all those people that had mocked him mercilessly for years. Oh, there's that crazy Enoch. He keeps shouting the world's going to end. Named his kid. He dies and it will come. And then one day he just disappears. Hey, you see the nutcase anywhere? Where'd he go? I don't know. Maybe, maybe he drowned. Maybe, maybe somebody killed him, buried him. Who knows? I don't know where he went. And they never gave it a thought. But his testimony lived on through his son and through his son's name. And what Enoch pictures for us, what he represents in your notes, number five, is the rescue of the righteous. Because what we have in the case of Enoch, you know what that is? That's the world's first rapture. The world's first rapture. God snatches a faithful person away. You know what? Not going to be the last one. There's another one coming. And it's coming for all who believe in Christ. One day, Christ will evacuate all his children from this world. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, The Lord will himself descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Amen. This is a foretaste of that future deliverance that all believers who are alive at his coming will experience. You're either going to die in Christ and you'll be with him immediately, or you're going to live long enough to see his coming. And he's going to call you up. And he, he's going to blow that trumpet, it says, the trump of God. And he's going to toot, we're going to scoot. Amen? That's right. And the world will say, what happened to all those crazy people? All those people who kept telling us, we got to turn. Where'd they go? And they'll come up with some theory that will satisfy them. But it'll be too late. Because they will not escape the judgment of the tribulation. Believers, you are like Enoch in four ways. First of all, as a Christian... You are like him in that you have been made righteous through Jesus Christ, and thus you 
are pleasing to God, not because of your own works, but because of the one in whom you have faith. You have pleased God, and therefore you walk with him. Number two, you are like Enoch in that God has granted you insight about the future. He's given you a glimpse through his revealed word, which you can discern by the spirit that lives in you. Number three, you're like Enoch in that you have been tasked with proclaiming what you know through the revelation of the word. You're not just given this truth to keep it to yourself. You've got to open your mouth because there are cars that are going to plunge off of that bridge. And you've got to turn them back. And then finally, you are like Enoch in that you will not suffer judgment. You will go home. You will be taken to be with the Lord because God is just. And those of us who have placed faith in the true God will be rewarded appropriately. Is that good to know? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the privilege of opening your word. I thank you for being able to look. God, as, as, as Jews of the Exodus could read this genealogy that we've just read, that God used Moses to pen, and they could be filled with uh, a sense of purpose, seeing those from whence they came, that they're part of something bigger. To see that great lineage, Lord, may we, as the Gentile church, look at the same text and be filled with hope and recognize there is a plan far greater than any human plan of ingenuity. You have a purpose for us. We are not gone yet. We are right here. And you've got a job for us to do. May we be faithful stewards of the hope that is in us and the rescue that is available for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.